Uh, my name's John. I'm a member of the worship team here. And when I was asked to read the scripture this morning, I was just struck by how much I experienced Jesus in my life in a very similar way to even the earliest followers. How sometimes I'm very affected by the presence of Jesus in my life, and sometimes I'm just not. For instance, when my children were born, um, when I have friends who I've been praying for who were baptized, or when the doctors came to me and told me that my cancer hadn't spread, like I was very affected by Jesus in my life. I was grateful for who he was. But there are other times that despite having these same gifts, I just don't have that same effect. Um, his, Jesus doesn't seem to have that same effect on my life. Um, I'll sing in praise. I'll read scripture. Um, I, I wake up healthy every day. My kids wake up healthy. But in those moments, I just don't acknowledge Christ as much as I feel like I should. It's like I'm having these two separate experiences and reactions to the presence of Jesus in my life. And we see examples of these two different types of heart responses uh, in the text today. It's from the Gospel of Luke. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him. What kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. I appreciate John reading that passage of scripture. And if you haven't already opened your Bibles, I invite you to do that to Luke chapter seven. It's about three fourths of the way back in your Bibles. And we're gonna read the last 15 verses starting in verse 36 today. And uh, while you're turning there, if you haven't been with us, we've been in this series called The Life of Christ. We're studying the Gospel of Luke the first six months of 2016. 
And we were doing that for the purpose because we want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. We want to learn the words, the works, and the way of Jesus. And as you're turning there, here's the question I want to talk with you about today as we look at this passage and prepare to take communion together in a little bit. Here's the question if you're following along in the notes. Why do some love Jesus little and others love him much? Why do some people love Jesus little and other people love him much? Better question. Why do I love him so little and sometimes much? What is that about? This passage that we're going to look at today has helped me come back to center line more times than I can count. When my heart gets proud or puffed up or indifferent or I start taking Jesus for granted, this encounter that Jesus had with Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman has oftentimes been used to tenderize me and melt my heart. And it's a perfect passage for us to look at for communion today before we come and remember Jesus. And so I want to ask you if you would pray with me and then we're going to look at this encounter and here's the question that I want to just answer in following up that question is where does great love come from? Where does great love come from? Let's pray. Now Lord, please come to every seat. Please speak to every heart, including mine. We want to be with you, Jesus. Would you please make that possible? In your name we pray, amen. Okay, if you're following in the notes, let's just walk through this story that John just read, this account, okay? First of all, I want to just explain before we start the first line, is that Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's home. How did that happen? Well, the Pharisees, oftentimes, if you've been in church very long, you may have a certain picture. A lot of times we put black hats on the Pharisees, but that's not necessarily fair. Anytime you categorize somebody, that's dangerous. So there were some Pharisees that were very open to Jesus. There were many Pharisees that were not. They were known as the separated ones. That's what Pharisee means. You would have been impressed by their religious zeal. You would have been impressed with their high aim for moral purity. You would have been impressed by a lot of things about them. Simon is one of this group. We don't know why he invited Jesus. Was it because he was really a seeker and wanted to know if Jesus was the real deal or is it because, like some of the other Pharisees, he wanted to test Jesus and see if he could make him look foolish? We don't know. The story implies something as we go along that may help you know more of what you think the answer is. But in those days, when they came into a home especially if someone as well-to-do as Simon, please know that it would have been a different situation, would have probably been at a large table in an open courtyard with a garden and possibly a fountain. So try and use your imagination and notice the first thing if you're following along. Jesus is reclining at the table when things get awkward. Jesus is reclining at the table when things get awkward. Sometimes because of art that we've seen over the years, here's the picture we have sometimes of people sitting at the table. But that's not how they ate in the East, in the Middle East. They actually reclined. And so I want you to picture that this is like a more modern day picture of people still reclining on low cushions with tables. And uh, I'll explain more about that in just a second. Here's another piece of art that shows this woman at Jesus' feet. How is that possible? Well, let me read to you 
um, what happened here um, according to William Barclay. In the east, the guests did not sit but reclined at the table. They laid on low couches, resting on the left elbow, leaving their right arm free to eat with, with feet stretched out behind, and during the meal, the sandals were taken off. Again, they wore sandals, not shoes. That explains how the woman was standing besides Jesus' feet. And so when you think about this, you're asked the question is, how did she even get in there? And that's because things were also different at large banquets and gatherings in the East, in the Middle East. What happened is, is that they were more open affairs than just private affairs. The door was open. Beggars could walk in. Passers-by that were curious could walk in. Extra friends could come. They wanted to oftentimes overhear what a rabbi might have to say so that they might gather some of the pearls of wisdom. And so this woman walks in And we notice that the scripture calls her a woman who's lived a sinful life, okay? So if you're following along, here's what I want you to see is that a sinful woman cries on, wipes with her hair, kisses and anoints Jesus' feet. A sinful woman cries on, wipes, kisses and anoints Jesus' feet. I wanted you to write that word feet. I was thinking about the fact that Diane Schlehan, one of our artists years ago, you can see these paintings down the hallway in more of the education wing. She painted, did a study on Jesus' feet and did pictures of that, painted those. It, it made me think of that again. But here's what I want you to think about with me is that this was incredibly awkward. Kent Hughes helps us understand this, but before I read that, let me tell you this. Can you imagine sitting in a restaurant with some of your friends here in Springfield? And all of a sudden, a woman, you know, walks in and she begins crying. She takes off your shoes and she just begins crying all over your feet, wiping them with her hair and then pouring something really expensive on there. Can you imagine the laughs, the stares, the frowns, the reaction right there? I mean, how would you feel? Jesus is in the middle of this with his guests there at Simon's house. Listen to what Kent Hughes writes. I really appreciate this. Our English translation obscures the onlooker's shock because the opening phrase, now when a woman, is literally, and look, a woman. The shock was due primarily to the woman's being a sinner. This term allows two possibilities. One is that she was married to a prominent sinner and the other is that she was a prostitute. The latter seems apparent from Simon's revulsion at her actually touching Jesus, as recorded in verse 39. This is the view of most commentators, older and modern. As the notorious woman remained bent over the Lord's feet, the murmurs gave way to an embarrassing silence. Not only was she in an obvious state of emotional agitation, but to be in the Pharisee's house at all was a grave breach of social decorum. But she was there because of gratitude. Somewhere, somehow, possibly through a public sermon or maybe through a private unrecorded conversation, Jesus' words had gone to her heart and she had turned to him and found forgiveness. And now she is at his feet with her perfume about to anoint the Savior's feet when everything went wrong. Her tears began to fall like raindrops in the dust, streaking his soiled feet. She had not meant for this to happen and she had no towel So the poor woman did the best she could by unloosing her long hair and wiping clean the master's feet. This was socially unacceptable because a woman was to loosen her hair only in the presence of her husband. 
The Talmud says that a woman could be divorced for letting down her hair in the presence of another man. So grave was the offense that the rabbis put a woman's loosening her hair and uncovering her breast in the same category. The guests and the onlookers were in intense shock. But the woman kept on anointing the Lord's feet. The aroma filled the courtyard. Then she repeatedly kissed his feet. The Greek verb means to kiss again and again. This woman was a self-forgetful mess, crying unashamedly, her nose runny with weeping, her hair stringy with the muddy mixture of dirt and tears. And Kent Hughes writes, I would be embarrassed if I saw such a display. Yet though it was clearly passionate, it was not erotic. It was a beautiful and fully proper outpouring of love by a redeemed soul. Notice when this happened, Simon had a reaction. If you're following along in the notes, Jesus knows what Simon says. I had kind of fun typing that this week. Simon says. You ever played Simon says? Jesus knows what Simon says to himself and tells a story. Simon, when he sees all this going on, says in his heart, if this man were a prophet, remember, we don't know if he thought Jesus was the real deal or not. We don't know exactly why he invited. If this man was a prophet, he would know who is touching him. You know, you don't want to be contaminated by those kind of people. Who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. Prostitute. Sells her body. But Jesus did know. And then he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon says, tell me. And Jesus, in three or four sentences, they're listed in that first gray box in your notes, tells him a parable that is unforgettable and sets this encounter on a whole different angle. Would you read it with me out loud? Let's read this. And by the way, before you read it, I always want you to read with understanding as much as possible. A denarius, one denarii, was a day's wage. So just know that that's the language there. Denarii is the words we're going to read, even though we're not used to those words. Okay, here we go. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon responds rather sheepishly, I suppose the one with the bigger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Now if you're following along in the notes, I want you to see is that Jesus tells this story of a money lender who forgives two people in debt who can't repay. Jesus tells this story. We're quickly drawn to the 500 and the 50. We see, oh, wow, one really owes a lot more than the other. But the key sentence there, if you're looking at that in the gray box, is the line that says, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So Jesus tells of two people that owed a moneylender different amounts, but neither of them had the power or the ability to pay him back. So he forgave them both. And then he asked this question, which one of them do you think will love him more? And he understands that what Simon is doing is he was thinking to himself, I may be a little sinner, she's a big sinner. But Jesus said, 
you don't understand, it's not about the amount. It's about the fact that neither can repay. And a lot of us walk around with a moral system that believes if I just do enough good things, I can pay off any debt I have with God. And the Bible tells us that the debt, no matter how big or small we may think it is, we can never repay it. We don't have it in the power of our best moral efforts. Wow. And then he says, but which one do you think loved him more if you're following along? Which of the two will love more and be more grateful? Which of the two will love more and be more grateful? And Simon says, I imagine, I suppose, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Now, I want you to see this. That right after that, Jesus contrasts Simon's love for him with this woman's love, if you're following along. Jesus contrasts Simon's love for him with this woman's love. The way that Simon treated Jesus and the way this woman treats Jesus. And what he does here is something that may not make much sense to us, but in the Middle East, there were unspoken rules of courtesy, hospitality. There were three things that if you were a good host, and again, Middle Easterners always wanted to be a good host. It was a a way of shame or uh, proper uh, respect. There were three things that you would do. One, you would wash their feet because they walked on dusty roads and so wearing sandals, it was a courtesy and also a refreshment to wash your feet. Usually you had a slave at the door that would wash their feet or as soon as their sandals were removed at the table, the feet would be washed. The second thing is, is that you would greet each other with a kiss. When the Bible says greet each other with a holy kiss, what it's saying is make sure that you really cherish and appreciate each other. And we often go, like, we don't do that. We shake hands. Well, in the Middle East, if you watch people, you can see even on TV, what do they do? They kiss each other on both cheeks. It's the way they greet each other. So there was usually a kiss. And the third thing, there was usually a touch of olive oil or some sweet-smelling fragrance that would be, a, a dab of it would be put on the forehead, again, as a way of saying welcome. Now what Jesus does is he contrasts that. And um, what I want you to see is that if you're looking at these verses, the first thing he says is, do you see this woman? In verse 44, do you see this woman is what he says to Simon. Friends, let me just stop here. What a question. What a question. Simon, do you even see this person? Do you even see this woman or is she a category to you? Is she someone to compete with or compare yourself to? Do you see this woman? I see this woman. I see her. Do you see her? Then he says, let me just show you something about her that you probably missed. When I walked in, you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. She didn't even think that she was worthy to kiss my face, but she, as a sign of unbelievable humility, has been kissing my feet repeatedly out of gratitude. And the third thing is, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she poured out the most expensive perfume that she had on my feet, treating me like a king. 
You invited me to your house, which is a sign of friendship, Simon. And yet you gave me a, a, a clear message that I, did not, I was not important to you. But she's given me a clear message that she has been touched by the forgiveness she's received. And it's turned out to be a response of gratitude and love. And read verse 47 with me there in that second grade box, would you? Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Please understand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that because she loved me like that, she got forgiven. He's saying she came to pour out this expensive perfume because she already has been forgiven. And it has so resonated in her heart, she had to get to me and say thank you. She had to love me back. The reason why you didn't even give me the basic courtesy is because you think you're a little sinner. And therefore, you love little Simon. And friends, I want you to see here that if you think Jesus is being hard on Simon, I believe he's being the most loving he could possibly be. He's not saying it in a condemning way. He's saying, Simon, do you see the difference? I'm challenging you to invite you higher. I'm challenging you to show you what is possible for you just as much as for her. Do you see her great love? You understand that great love is a response to great love. She understands. Friends, I just want to say this to you. Think about this woman. She had never, ever had a man look at her like Jesus looked at her before. She had never been treated with that kind of respect, that kind of honor. She had never, ever had a religious leader look at her with anything but scorn and stay away, ooh, cooties. Jesus looks at her and he receives her. Friends, what a savior. What a savior. And then he does this incredible thing. He declares her forgiven, praises her faith, and if you're following along, says go into peace. He declares her forgiven, praises her faith, and says, go into peace. That's literally what it means there. And so when he says, go in peace. Now, let me just ask you a couple things to think with me. Why does he say your sins are forgiven when he had just said earlier, do you see why she's loving me like this? Because her sins have been forgiven, past tense. Because the group of people that are in that courtyard that day, they don't think her sins are forgiven. And Jesus honors her in front of all those people and says, your debt is completely paid for. Wow, they were all going, like who has the power to forgive sins like this? They all want to know, who is this? And then he says these incredible words to her. He says, your faith has saved you. What does he mean? Your trust, like we learned a couple weeks ago, is well-placed By trusting in me and my heart for you, my great love for you, it has saved you from the consequences. Friends, when we think of debt nowadays, many of us have become more comfortable living with debt. And sometimes maybe that's necessary. But for the most part, in those days, if you had debt, you went to prison. You didn't get bankruptcy options. You didn't just say, well, they'll give me more credit. 
you went to prison. The consequences were severe. That's why the gratitude would have been so incredibly. You saved me from a future that was hopeless. He says, your trust has literally changed the trajectory of your life. And then he says, so go into peace. Step into this next chapter, a new person. Step into this chapter knowing that you have been set free by God to live by God and now serve out of a grateful heart instead of a guilty heart. To serve out of a want to instead of a have to. To know that your debt, which you never could have repaid, has been paid in full. Wow, this is amazing, friends. All of us, don't all of us long to have Jesus somehow touch our past, our present, our future like that. And that moment, Jesus did. What great love. So here's the question. Where does great love come from? When my heart begins to become a heart that takes Jesus for granted, when my heart becomes proud, when my heart runs back to old patterns, when my heart treats Jesus like he's not important, what is gonna help our hearts have great love? Where does that come from? Let's talk about that. First, here's what I want you to see. This woman sees her great need, Simon does not. This woman sees her great need, Simon does not. He thinks he's a little sinner. He thinks that the money lender only had to forgive him a little, that he could have probably repaid it, so he doesn't even think it's a big deal. This woman realizes in spades that it's not just all my outward rule breaking that's the problem. I've got a problem at the fountainhead of my heart. I've got something that continues to produce a wrong response to God. And unless he deals with that great need, I'm dead. I'm dead. I have no future. She saw it. Jesus had said something similar when he was criticized back in Luke chapter 5 for hanging out with sinful people. Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And friends, I don't know. I don't know how you look at yourself. I don't know if you try and act bigger than you are. But when the Lord made himself known to me as a 15-year-old, I didn't need anyone. I didn't need to pretend anymore. I knew that my heart was in debt to God and I could not pay. And my need for God wasn't just a momentary thing. It was a profound thing. And so I have a great need for Christ. How about you? I have a great need for Christ. Warren Wiersbe says this well too. I appreciate what he writes here. Jesus' parable for Simon isn't about, isn't about the amount of sins in our heart. It's about the awareness of sin in our heart. So friends, I run into people all the time. They'll just say, well, you know, I know some people really need God. I'm a good person. And I'm thankful, friends. Please know, this text is not saying that you and I can't improve ourselves to some degree, but it's saying that no matter what, we can never outrun our indebtedness to God and our position and status as sinners unless he does something. Our need is great. She understood it. Simon did not. The second thing is, is that she's affected by the great cost to Jesus. Simon is not. She's affected by the great cost to Jesus. 
when she hears Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And she heard him saying that I must be killed. I must be crucified to be the payment for the debt of all humankind. She started understanding. God helped open her mind to understand, oh my goodness, when I've done all these things I've done, when I've held all these attitudes, when I've had all these postures towards other people and God, Someone had to pay. Someone got injured by that. Someone got hurt by that. And I'm standing in front of the one that's been hurt the most, God in human flesh. And all she could do was get to Jesus' feet as fast as she could in total amazement and awe and wonder and gratitude and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Those same feet, a couple years later, would have spikes driven through them in order to pay for this woman's forgiveness. And she was, by God's grace, putting this together. And when you and I, what I love about her, friends, is how healthy and cleansing her tears are. Some of us, we manage our sin by obsessing over it. So much so that our Savior is so puny that he cannot pay the great cost and be the great lover that we need. This woman understood, oh, my sin is great. I do not deny it. Jesus didn't deny it. But what a Savior. What a great cost he's willing to pay. Oh, I love you, Jesus. I love you for that. And he understood that. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London in the late 1800s said this, I love it. I have a great need for Christ. Would you read this second line with me? I have a great Christ for my need. Look to Jesus, friends. Look to Jesus. In a moment, he can change your life. And for those of us that have trusted him in the past, we need to look to Jesus today and have our hearts melted afresh by his unbelievable love for us and the great cost he paid. Amen. And the third thing I want you to see is that she gratefully commits herself to Jesus. Simon will not. She gratefully commits herself to Jesus. Simon will not. Think about this as we think about the great cost in committing ourselves to Jesus. Look at Romans 5, if you would, with me here on the screen. This is so important as we think about coming for communion today. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his, what's the phrase there, friends? Great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still messed up and sinners, great love. And therefore, that kind of great love down through history has brought a response of one of two kinds. One of people that go, I don't need great love, go help someone who does. And those that say, I have a great need for a great love that would pay a great cost for me. And I receive you, Jesus, into my life, I submit myself to you, I commit myself to you. Friends, that's what I want you to see. We may miss this, but 
In those days when it said she came, her sole purpose to come was to pour this alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. In those days, women wore these around their necks. They were probably more like small bottles, small alabaster jars like that. They wore it a lot as their identity, but also to enhance themselves and to be attractive, to smell even better. And it was for her a tool of her trade. It represented all that she was and all that she'd put her trust in. And as she pours this out on Jesus' feet, what she's saying is, this has been more important to me than anything else. Now you're more important to me than anything else. I hold nothing back. I commit everything I have been and ever will be to you. I offer myself. The Bible says in Romans 12, 1, look at this. This is so incredible. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And so when you and I think about the word commit, the word commit means to lean on something or someone to the place of vulnerability. What did she do? How did she have the courage to walk in and thank Jesus like that? Because his great love had registered on the heart in such a profound way that she was no longer unwilling to hold anything back from Jesus, but to give herself. And you and I, when we think of all the Christians throughout history that we respect, where did that kind of response come from? Because they had met Jesus. Look at C.T. Studd. Here was a missionary who said this. He had gone to Cambridge in England when God hit him between the running lights with this truth. Let's read it together. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And this great love has opened the hearts of proud people like you and me, ungrateful people like you and me, and it's softened us. And it's made us realize I don't have to live out of a performance mentality anymore. Now I live out of a grace-filled, gratitude-filled, loved heart. Wow, this is good news, friends. And so, one more line, if you're following along in the notes. Lord, I can love much as I remember I've been forgiven much. Have you all seen 1 John 4.19? It kind of says this. Let's read this together. We love because he first loved us. He doesn't love us because we first loved him. We love because he first loved us. And so, friends, think about this. Why do we know this Pharisee's name? Why do we know so many details? If you go back to the first four verses of Luke, the very beginning, he says, Theophilus, I carefully investigated every detail that I'm writing for you. And I believe that Luke, this is just conjecture, but imagine with me, I believe he went back and as he began to tell the stories, the early Christians said, you need to talk with Simon. He's a follower of Jesus now. Friends, what if Jesus' challenge became an invitation that later in his life, Simon took to heart and that one day, Simon and this woman, made new by Christ, worshiped at the same communion table? Because Christ does not love sinful people more than righteous people. He loves Simon as much as he loved this woman and he loves you as much as he loves me. 
And this is an amazing thing. It means that when you and I, our heart becomes crusty, we can remember. And it can soften and tenderize us yet again. And if we've never trusted Christ before, today could be the day when his great love finds an echo in your heart and a response in your heart. And so, years ago, a buddy taught me this song. It just goes like this. It goes, Christ paid the debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all because Christ paid a debt that I could never pay. How do you remember what Jesus has done for you so that love can flow from your heart in a fresh way? One of the ways we do it as a church family is to practice communion. We also do it sometimes with singing his praises where we remember what he's done for us. Sometimes we do it by the practice of confession where we actually spell out the different things we've done that have shown such little love or injury to Jesus. Not, so, not because we're not forgiven already as believers, but because we don't want anything to mar and strain that fellowship with Jesus. We want that great love to keep flowing into us, through us, to other people. Let's pray. Now, Lord, this is a great opportunity. We believe you're here. We want to be with you. Show us however we need our hearts corrected or renewed and reinfused with your great love. We're critical and judgmental. We're proud. We're careless. We're indifferent at times. Thank you for watching us again and again through what you've done. In your name we pray, amen.